Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. The PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $19 billion promotional products business. I'm Bobby Leehu. I'm joined by my friend and co-host Mark Graham, president of Right Sleeve and CEO of Common Skew. And joining us on today's podcast is Jonathan Isaacson, president of the Gem Group and Gem Line, Known by many in our profession, Jonathan is a highly respected voice in the industry and is regarded for his opinion on, opinions on trends in our industry and numerous topics, namely product safety, compliance, inflation, China, importing, you name it. I've always respected Gemline for their operations and their marketing, which they do a fine job of. Gemline has been the recipient of numerous awards in the industry, including multiple distributor choice awards, best places to work, and more. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. We are really glad to have you on. I know a few years ago, and my memory is muddled, but I heard you speak at a high-profile industry event, and you talked about, uh, you sort of gave a 20,000-foot view of the industry and where we were at. If I recall right, this was right in the midst of the recession or toward the end. It was pretty bleak news, um, part of it was. Uh, And I remember one of my takeaways was you had made the comment, it was fairly controversial, that the industry had matured. How has your opinion changed on the industry since since uh, for a few uh, a couple years ago? It hasn't changed. The industry has matured, but it doesn't have to be disappointing. Hmm. Every industry matures. I mean, if you think about, I'm talking to you via a laptop right now, and if you think about the laptop and the computer business, uh, laptops uh, worldwide shipments are not growing um, in part because there's a new technology coming along, and if you're in that business, you just have to recognize that the business has matured um, and figure out how you're going to plan your business around the external factors. Yeah. So if, if part of it, if, if you look back and you hear um, PPAI or ASI talk about the industry, they'll tell you, if you look at the numbers, we haven't grown, we're getting back towards the numbers from 2007. And right. in fact, what's interesting is as I've done research, uh, our industry sales tracks fairly closely to employment growth. So when there's employment growth, our industry tends to do well. When there isn't employment growth, our industry doesn't tend to do well. And I found another uh, interesting piece, which is, uh, and I, I haven't done all the research on this, but I believe that we're pretty well tied to auto sales. That when auto sales are doing well, we tend to do a little bit better. And when auto sales are doing worse, we tend to do a little bit worse. Um, so even though the entire industry uh, may be a mature industry, it doesn't mean that individual players aren't going to do better or worse uh, within the total. So, so Jonathan, you, you've been a fast-growing supplier for, for many years. And if, if I understand what you're saying correctly, your ability to grow at Gemline is going to be uh, uh, from or using an approach of stealing market share from other suppliers. Would you say that that's correct? And if so, uh, what areas do you see you stealing market share in? <laughs> there you go. Is that That's proprietary? <laughs> so we don't like to think about it as stealing market share. We like to think about it as providing va- differentiated value to our customers. And if you think about great companies out there, you think about Toyota, you think about Apple, they do everything yeah. with the customer in mind. So we're not sitting around saying, geez, competitor X, Y, and Z is doing this and we really want to take it to them or hurt them. What we want to say, what we say is, what can we do today that's going to provide value to everybody in the value chain? What makes somebody want to use our company 
uh, of course, it's always versus somebody or something else. And yeah. we compete against everything. So you can we compete against jackets, even though we're not in the jacket business. And we have to show people that we can provide extraordinary value. And so for us, the place that we go to um, is really uh, we we do that in part uh, through. Uh, trend and in part through design. We're one of the few people in the industry who uh, designs all their own stuff based on trends that we see in the market and try to bring that, that back and make it approachable for somebody in the promotional products business. There aren't a whole lot of people designing their own stuff in general uh, and there aren't a whole lot of people, in fact, nobody we think who's approaching the market in the same way that we are, and we're doing that on purpose. We're trying to be different from it, from other people. There are people in the market who are trying to be the lowest cost supplier. It's not a bad strategy. It's just a different strategy from what we do. We're trying to compete on a different dimension. You've brought a, new, a number of some high-profile brands to the market, at least a few that I'm aware of. Um, how's that been for sales uh, since you started that process? Actually, we had this conversation this morning. That business is going extremely well for us, in part because we've been very selective about what we've done. Mm -hmm. So our goal is not just to bring product to market. And one of the things, and this is a little bit of a side note, uh, to our brand strategy is if you look at what a lot of suppliers have done, there's been an absolute explosion in terms of the number of SKUs uh, that are out there in the marketplace. And if you think about a supplier, a $10 million supplier, let's say, who has 100 SKUs, if they add another 100 SKUs and they don't add at least that much in sales, their SKU productivity, the amount of sales per SKU goes down. And if you then take that all the way back up in their value stream and think about what this means to um, the cost for them to bring that product to market and their ability to deal with their supply chain, it has a real implication for how um, suppliers perform in the marketplace. Because as you cut up your sales, it means that you're almost necessarily going to be less deep in inventory yeah. and you're going to have less buying power back upstream in the supply chain. So if we're going to bring something to market, it has to match who we are. It has yeah. to be differentiated. It has to be on trend in some way. Uh, and it has to provide some exceptional value Uh Otherwise, we're not going to bring it to market. So we're very, very careful. And for everything that we've brought to market, whether it's Zebra, whether it's Brookstone, whether it's Bobble, these are differentiated in some way. There is not a lot like it in the marketplace. Uh, and we can identify a clear customer value. Uh, and we're able to manage the inventory. Otherwise, we really just don't want to do it. Speaking of inventory, have you are, are you guys – purchasing deeper inventory now that the economy has uh, – that we're no longer scared to death about the economy? Or has your inventory purchasing not changed much in the past couple of years? Actually, our inventory um, has less to do with emotion yeah. than it has to do with the mathematics um, of what's selling and what's going on uh, within the supply chain at any one time. So for most suppliers – you know that Chinese, if you're buying a lot, let's say a particular line from China, you know that Chinese New Year is coming and you have to bring up your inventory in anticipation of China. Um, what is very difficult about this industry 
is that it's very hard to get a read on what's going to sell. So mm. imagine that we bring two pens to market. Mm. What I've always said is it's amazing to me how smart the market is. So everybody knows that pen A is the best thing since sliced bread, and everybody simultaneously knows that pen B sucks and they shouldn't buy it. We can't figure out how when we bring these two pens to market, and we like both of them in the line review meetings. Right. We think they're great. We think they're going to sell. We've bought inventory. Why everybody only buys A and not buy, and they don't buy B. When they all buy A, it means that necessarily there's going to be a run on them, and our inventory might not, in fact, catch up for a little while to the demand for A. And you've got this going on on both a micro and a macro level across the entire line that you're launching. And if you have a big line launch, you're going to have more of that. Um, and if you have a smaller line launch, you're still going to have it. But every business I've talked to in the industry, no matter how good the operator is, has issues in terms of forecasting demand appropriately. And that drives a lot of really what we do. It's good to hear that your perspective on that. I think we forget. I mean, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for suppliers in the industry because you have to juggle so many uh, disciplines, you know, importing and, and the inventory management, all those different things. Switching gears a little bit, Mark and I are continually having this conversation about the future of the distributorship supplier model, as I'm sure many people do. Um, what are you seeing in the industry from a distributor's perspective best practices um you know we've mark and i have kind of been playing with this pet theory that you see three business models from a distributor's perspective out there you've got this direct online seller uh that is selling uh you know we know the biggies that are out there that are selling primarily online then you have the company store companies like ours that are trying to do this value add with stores and this agency model like what you have with mark and right sleeve um what do you think the future looks like for the distributor supplier model that's a big question well, I think that today, and if I look at my crystal ball, today is right. three to five years, that the model as we have it still provides a lot of value um, because it's a very local transaction in a lot of cases. Even if you get into a very big program with a Fortune 100 company, what happens, even though there might be a company store aspect of it, there's a local transaction. And even for the people who are selling online, there's still a customer service aspect yeah. to it, although those are different business models. So uh, a couple of things. One is I think there's going to be a bunch of different business models that emerge, and you've identified three of them. I suspect there'll be, and there are today, others that are out there. Um, and I think that the bulk of the business is still going to be handled um, through distributor salespeople out there buying from a supplier base. Mm -hmm. um, because this is a, if you think about it, I, I tell people we sell the Fortune 50,000, that what company out there doesn't have stuff with their logo on it, and you have it because it provides affinity either externally or internally. So internally, I, I have a friend um, who has a fairly sizable business. They probably have four or 5,000 employees nationwide, and the father who founded the business actually selects the promotional products um, that they use, and in part because he founded the company, it's his legacy, and it's their name that's going on that legacy. It's very, very important to him right. in terms of what they buy. And so you see the impact uh, that it can have, and I think many of us have seen uh, the research that's been put out both by PPAI and, on AS, and by ASI on the efficacy of promotional products. 
And given that, I think that there are going to be people out there who find ways to deliver value. And it is today about delivering value. Sure, you're going to have more bid situations out there um, because uh, for everybody, it has been a tough few years. And when the economy got tough in 08 and 09, there were certain practices that were put into place and have continued, like getting three bids or whatever it is out there. But there are people who have managed to change the paradigm. There are distributors out there who sell creative services of various types um, who, or who have some other go-to-market. They understand a vertical really well, you know, some sort of healthcare vertical that they know everything that happens trade shows are and there is some special value that they deliver to the customer that the customer is willing to pay for hmm. i think uh and i if you, if you think about the power of relationships i mean at the end of the day that's one of the most important things that we continue to have in this industry and and uh, and over the, my 15 years in the business i think when i first got into it i i i wasn't entirely sure that i was the basis of a great business but We've been very active online. We've been very active in the agency side. But when we have our sales meetings today, it always comes back to that relationship. So it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that on the supplier side. Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I will not, you will never hear me say that it's completely about relationships. Because the problem is, as much as I like, if, I, if I'm the customer and you two are selling me, I like, might like both of you equally, even though that you, you're competitors. It's the relationships, um, I, I, what I'll say is that trust is the basis of all relationships. Yep. So if I trust that you're looking to add value to me, then I'm going to want to do business with you. Um, yeah, there may be some orders at the margin I'll throw to you because I like you, but ultimately it's about providing value. Um, and the reason that you have those relationships and the reason that people trust you is because you're able to provide value at the end of the day. Yep. And that for me is the basis of a relationship. It seems as the old value, there was, it wasn't really a value proposition, but the old model, here's a pile of catalogs, pick your item, let me know. What you're saying really is there, there's entered in all of these models some type of value proposition. When you look at the online sellers, I mean, the convenience, the speed, the purchasing, they've eliminated a lot of the business development steps or the sales reps steps in the process. But the, uh, I've been maintaining for a while for distributors that the value proposition that we have, have had traditionally has been under assault for some time. Mm-hmm. And the industry is going to be less a victim of disinterme- disintermediation. Uh, and and from some big company, as it will be, just us not really rising to the challenge, providing that value. Well, if you think about the online sellers, they've figured out a model for a certain type of customer to yep. provide exceptional mm-hmm. value. So they help that customer who has a specific objective in mind to meet that objective in a very effective way. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy from there. Mm-hmm. You know, Amazon does that across a number of products. You don't buy lettuce from Amazon because they really can't, or fresh milk from Amazon. It's a place where they can't provide value. But on a book delivered electronically, they can provide a lot of value. They make it easy. They've got the whole system set up to deliver that value. Um, If you think about what a distributor salesperson does, if I send you catalogs and say, pick what you like, there's absolutely no value being delivered at all. 
the value is that I understand you, I understand your business, and in an industry where there's this unbelievable skew proliferation that we spoke about Mm -hmm. earlier, how do I help you to select something that's going to have the biggest impact uh, and achieve the goals that you want to achieve? And so what we talk about here is we're not looking for an order, we're looking for a customer. So it's not a one-time deal. So even if it doesn't benefit me today, to you know, I would get a bigger benefit by selling you B. I want to sell you A because it gives you the benefit, and I know that you're going to come back next time. And mm-hmm. that's about that's the value that we deliver in this. That I am your brand steward. That I know which product is going to work. I know which product is safe. I'm going to make sure it gets there on time. Um, I'm going to do it in a pleasant and effective way. And yeah. that's really the value and everybody has to come up with some sort of twist on their own business to make them different than the guy next door and there are some very creative business models out there in the industry hmm. um, Jonathan I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about made in the USA manufacturing or domestic manufacturing and, and you I, I know when we were uh, chatting in Vegas you told us a story about how you had uh, grown the family business and had really uh, uh, made some strong footholds in the in the Asian market from a manufacturing perspective um, you're starting to see uh, a return to American-based manufacturing, and you're seeing this at retail. I think about uh, the um, uh, jeans that I just bought at Bonobus, and, uh, and they're, of course, made in the U.S., and I know that that's not a promotional supplier, but you, you hear stories of this, and probably the best example in the U.S. is, is American Apparel, and they've been uh, uh, largely U.S.-based or completely U.S.-based uh, T-shirt production since the, since, since the very beginning. The reason I so I I wanted to ask you whether you see in the next few years a, an American-based manufacturing component to your line, and the only reason I ask this is because you're someone I see as being on top of the trends. But then I remember sitting in your your Vegas presentation on trends, and I noted the Made in the USA and the Americana theme, and whether you see that really uh, uh, coming back to making your products domestically, or at least some of them. So, first of all, we know that America, um, on a macro level, from an economic standpoint, is one of the biggest manufacturers in the world still today. Um, and it's, it's really about um, uh, average unit productivity. Uh, it's, about, it's about productivity, um, average unit price. It talks about the price you pay for wages versus productivity. Um, and if you look at uh, the type of products that are made in America, it's item. You, you, we still make computers. We make airplanes. We make. Uh, we're great at software. We're great at entertainment. There's a bunch of things that we're good at. One of the things that we're not good at is things that are sewn um, today. Uh, and there are some things that are not sewn that can get made in the U.S. But things that are sewn generally are not done here. So American Apparel is if you think about it, that's a great example of somebody who has positioned themselves differently in the market. So their position is made in America, it's cool, it's hip, it's not the le- and it's trendy, and it's not the least expensive. If yep. you want the center for T-shirts in the world, it's really Honduras. That's where yep. it's all moved to. And mm-hmm. there is a cluster in Honduras. I've been there, uh, been in those factories um, where they're building a lot of the T-shirts today. And there's other places like uh, Pakistan has uh, fabulous cotton in India. Um, and 
that will likely stay there for the foreseeable future with the understanding that technology is going to change a lot of things over time. And there's a bunch of um, changes that are sweeping the manufacturing world that are going to have a huge impact on the ability to build things in different places. Not the least of which is this whole concept that was really um, perfected. No, it's not perfected. It was taken to the next level. It's never perfected uh, by Toyota when they developed this whole concept of what we call here the lean manufacturing, which is really based on the Toyota production system, which is really a way to get uh, the associates in an organization to improve quality and productivity. Um, and that system that they developed has really swept the manufacturing world and it's allowed manufacturers and service providers in a huge range of industries to deliver a better product faster. Mm. And that will have as much impact, in fact, in many ways as any technological change. But there are a lot of technological changes that are coming along out there that are going to have a huge impact on where we produce goods. But in the short term, three to five years, just don't see it in terms of sewn product in the U.S. Don't see it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I say to people, if you're in, you know, pick a country, um, uh, Mozambique, and I say, and I walk into uh, the mall and I say, raise your hand, forget the mall, I go into a village and I say, hey, raise your hand if you want somebody to be able to work in a nice factory on a sewing line, a lot of people will raise their hands. Um, If I walked into a mall in Toronto and I said, hey, who wants their kid to work on a sewing line? Uh, nobody's going to raise their hand. They want them to work at Intel. They want them to maybe work in some sort of heavier manufacturing, maybe work at Boeing or Intel or or Apple, but not really on a sewing line. That's yep. something that helps poor countries become wealthier. And if you look at China, an enormous amount of people have been taken out of poverty yeah. um, and given a middle-class lifestyle. And I saw it in Korea, I saw it in Taiwan, I've seen it in South America, I've seen it around the world. Globalization has, in many ways, taken an an enormous amount of people and lifted them out of poverty, which in turn is good for the North American countries, uh, America, Canada, because it provides us with export markets for things like the food that we're so good at producing. Mm -hmm. No country is good at producing everything. We have what we're good at. Japan has what it's good at uh, in a lot of ways. Honduras has what it's it's good at. And we all trade with each other. I mean, it's sort of economics 101. And I just don't see uh, with promotional products in the near term that it's going to be a lot of manufacturing coming back here. Uh, That said, it doesn't mean that some people can't position themselves with American-made good goods and there won't be some products where it makes sense yep as a direct result of one of our previous podcasts we actually developed an infographic that showed really what how how the service industries benefit so greatly from all of the imported goods that we handle we we did this for a delicate situation where we had a customer of course wanting to to buy hundred you know more made in the usa uh, goods so it was actually enlightening for everyone to look at what's kind of going on, and Jonathan, you you got you have a very global outlook because you're physically in these places and you see these things, and then you drill down and study the numbers. So that perspective is uh, absolutely fascinating. 
Well, here's the other side of this thing. Take a look at the much maligned Walmart um, with whatever their slogan is, the you know lower prices every day or the lowest prices every day. People look at it and they say, boy, they're not buying from the USA, even though they buy a huge amount from the US. And they look at it from a producer standpoint. Now take a look and look at it from a consumer standpoint. If you're like most people and you're on a budget uh, or you're in the lowest 20% of income earners in the United States, think about what a benefit Walmart has been to you being able to deliver very low prices uh, and reasonable quality. Hmm. It's not the best quality on everything, but the Windex you Hmm. buy at Walmart – seems to me to be the same Windex that they sell at Target or you know some or Stop and Shop where I buy my yep. groceries and they're able to do it at very effectively and it's been very helpful for a lot of people mm-hmm. and so I think that globalization has provided real value to consumers um in many countries because it allows them um to get products at a price that they never would have been able to before. You know, uh, I live in a very historic uh, part of the United States, uh, you know, the home of famous Concord and Lexington and the Revolutionary War. And if you go into some of the homes that some of these famous, wealthy uh, patriots lived in and you look at how they lived, Hmm. uh, these are the richest people and compared it to how low middle class or poor people live today, I'd argue that poor people today live a heck of a lot better than the very wealthy did back then on so many different fronts. And that bar continues to move. And it does get moved in part by some of these multinationals that are so focused on delivering exceptional value to their customers, whatever they define as exceptional. Good stuff. We don't want to take up too much of your time, Jonathan. This has been an enlightening conversation. Um, we have the 10 questions that we sent you. You got my 10 questions okay, right? Uh, I have them. Mark, uh, do you have any, before we launch into the 10 questions, do you have any final questions for Jonathan? No, I, I, I think this has been fascinating. It's just great to hear you, hear you speak and riff on about these various topics, Jonathan, so appreciate it very much. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So we'll launch right into them. We could spend easily spend another hour with you, Jonathan, but of course we won't. So don't worry. You look at if you look at glance at your calendar. So let's get right to them. Number one, what's your favorite word? Empowerment. There's nothing that gets a company moving like people who feel truly empowered uh, and buy into what they're doing and understand what providing value is. So empowerment is it. You get that from your team. I get that from your team. As a, as a company that works with you guys a lot. Uh, number two, room, desk, and car. Which do you clean first? You know, I thought about it, but uh, every day my desk has to be in at least reasonable shape before I leave. And uh, car, it depends what kid was eating what in the back seat and what <laughs> stuck to it. So right. that's much less often. Right. <laughs> Favorite animated film? It'd have to be Toy Story. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge animated film guy, but there was a seminal breakthrough where the magic of Pixar got put together and started something completely new and different. So it's not just about the animated film. It's what it represented. Yeah. Mm. Favorite beverage? Red wine has to be. Are you a cab or <laughs> Pinot Noir? What do you, what, where do you, well, I have, a, I have a huge range of what I like, um, but I've been drinking Malbecs because mm. they're great values. They 
there's a range of them that are really quite good. Um, and I just like them. Yeah. Uh, first Mars visit, you can only take the complete works of one artist and author with you. Who are they? It would be a very, very distressing thing. I thought about it, and I actually looked at my bookshelf. Um, and ultimately, I decided it'd have to be somebody like David McCullough or Walter Isaacson because I like history a lot. And um, if I had a pick, it'd have to be one of those guys. It would be painful picking. Mm. Yeah. The McCullough Americans in Paris book is one that's still on my wish list. McCullough, he's just a brilliant writer. He, I love reading anything that he uh, interviews, anything that he wants to, he talks about. He's in mm. your area. He's from your area, isn't he? He is. He was here. A friend of mine just had dinner with him not too long ago. But, oh. um, and every little while I, I go into the little market uh, and I see Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, mm. there. Or there, there's, a, there's a lot of people around here. Yeah. Uh, you know, walking by, but um, there's just the the problem today is that there's so much to read mm-hmm. um, that it's hard to keep up. Absolutely, I agree. So, what what excites you about our industry? Two things. Um, the most interesting thing about the industry is the people. That's what you hear people. That that's what you hear people talk about in the industry is the other people. There are some really great and interesting people who are engaged in this industry. And it doesn't, it has almost a genteel nature to it. Yes, people are very competitive, but they're not nasty. Yeah. There's um, a way that people deal with one another uh, that is very pleasant. And even with uh, our biggest competitors, I feel like we have pretty good a pretty good relationship. And yeah. we can go fight with them for every order and then go hang out and have a beer together. Yeah. And that's okay. Uh, and the other thing that sort of goes along with that is the creativity that you see, that you look around and every little while you go, holy crap, that's a good idea. I wish I had thought of that. Or, wow, look at what these people are doing. That's really, really cool. And yeah. that's fun mm-hmm. to watch. Mark does that with most of the stuff that we do. Um, what, steal your ideas, does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Jonathan, what deflates you about our industry? When people don't take it seriously enough um, and don't recognize the effectiveness of the product. So I hate when people call it swag because it demeans what we do. We provide great value to people. We're the only form of advertising that people actually like to receive. All the data put out by everybody, all the research says that it's a really cost-effective and really just generally efficient way, an effective way uh, to get people to do something, to drive affinity, uh, it's a it's good stuff that we're doing out there, yeah. um, and I don't like to see people cheapen it. I like a- Jonathan. I think you need to go and register your complaints at swagexpert.com. You need to go I there right that. now. Yeah. Shut yes, that down. Sir. Yes, yes, sir. Well, we'll have to have another debate That's, about the it's word It's an embarrassment swag. to our we, industry. We've had this yes, debate. Yes, you know, the, <laughs> we, the we, first time I heard about that was from the Undersecretary of the Treasury. He said, swag. I said, what's swag? And he told me as we were having a conversation, believe it or not, um, and uh you know, the funny thing is that there's there's two ways to approach it. I don't know if you've been on um, Virgin Atlantic Airlines, but there's a really sort of hip way that they approach the market. Um, when you get on the plane from the lighting to the cartoons to stuff like that, and you can take uh, you can take the swag piece and you can make something tongue in cheek and hip, and you can also demean it and turn it into trinkets and trash. Right. And it's the trinkets and trash that makes our stuff worth less to people. And when the buyer, you know, pick a big company like IBM or Oracle or 
whoever who's looking at this and saying, do I want to do trinkets and trash or do I want to provide something that represents my brand, Google, whoever it is that you think who has a lot of brand equity, we need to be the stewards of our customers' brand equity. Yeah. Uh, and we can't do that by demeaning what we do. Uh, and a shout out to PPAI and their promo products work week and, and uh, all the work that Paul and, and the team are putting behind that. I'd love to see that that concept but, because regardless of what the, the three of us agree on the particular terminology um, and the nuances of the word, it's how we all use it and approach the medium that makes it yeah. uh, trinkets and trash versus um, you know a, an effective medium. Absolutely. So what profession other than our own would you like to attend? Boy, that's a hard one. Um, you know, I think that if I wasn't doing this, it'd be – and this is going to sound corny like I set this up, but it'd be some philanthropic venture. Hmm. Um, after I'm done with this, uh, that's really what I'd like to do. Maybe uh, And maybe separate from this teaching, uh, if you think about stuff that really um, – provides meaning it's about working with other people and in some way that changes their lives and who does that more than a teacher or somebody that's working in a philanthropy some sort of charity that's important there's just so many opportunities out there and the one thing that i've seen from traveling the world um is that the need is infinite Hmm. out there there's an infinite amount of places that we can all provide value or do something that changes the world to be a little bit better and I know this sounds corny and like I'm making it up, but I really believe it. Uh, and we do that. Uh, we try to make that a part of actually uh, what we do here at work. And for all of us, we're all driven by different reasons. Some people, it's faith. Some people, it's personal belief, whatever it is. Um, but we all have to leave the place a little bit better than how we found it. That's good. And and we're beneficiaries of your natural teaching um, it just comes out of you, and I, th- I think we've benefited from that greatly as an industry. Um, well, so what profession would you not like to do? Well, that's a hard one because there's you know you you think about um, all the hard jobs that are out there. That kid picking through trash out there in the pile in India, and so we're going to take all of those sort of third world bad, dirty jobs out. And I don't think that I would be good at something like selling cars um, where there's not a lot of trust in the relationship. Mm. Um, It's not that they're bad people, but I think over the years, I I don't want to be in any industry where I feel like it's always adversarial, where you can't work together. Um, And so if I think about it, it's something like car sales. I also think that today, you know, taking that to the logical extension, being in politics today as things are set up where there's no trust and no ability to work together would be very distasteful unless you have some heroic belief that you can change the system. Uh, And I I find it hard to believe, especially given where we are today, the Monday after uh, sequestration. I almost said sequester. Isn't it funny that of most of the people that we have interviewed and asked these questions of, Jonathan, well over 75% of them have said they don't want to be a politician? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think when, when you're – the people who do it are almost pathologically driven to it. Um, and it's, they've wanted to do it for a long time. People you – know, what kid – in the United States doesn't say, geez, I want to be the president of the United States. Yep. But the reality of governing um, – mm-hmm. actually, the reality of governing is really interesting. If you go around the world and look and you talk to people 
everybody thinks that they have the absolute worst system in the world. And so if you go to Japan, they'd say, oh, completely dysfunctional. You go to India, messy, messy democracy. You go to a bunch of South American countries. You go to, you know, go to Mexico. Go to Italy right now. I mean, if you look mm. at the cover of The Economist, bring on the clowns. They've literally got an ex-comedian and a guy who, uh, let's say he's problematic, Berlusconi, who are trying to take control from the adult supervision who would put the country back on track. And the people who live in – and then you can go into Spain and all these other places. The people who are living in these countries look and they see complete – and total dysfunction. And then they compare these big countries to small homogenous countries like Singapore or Finland. Well, Singapore, not everybody's not the same, but certainly in Finland, you've got six, seven million people who are all the same. And it's really hard to find a place with good governance. And the problem is when you get bad governance, it really screws things up, mm. but good, and makes doing what we do almost impossible. Mm. Um, and so if you look at Politics may be one of the hardest things out there to do yeah. uh, in so many different ways. And Mark, I think you look at the profiles of people that we have talked to on this podcast. They're very driven, and they're used to moving the needle. Yep. And that profession, yeah, absolutely. They are, they're used to, to making things happen. So yep. this is going to be a tough question, kind of like the author's question, but because Jonathan's a pretty plugged-in guy. Favorite app software at the moment? Newsstand. Um, and I know that's funny, but you know why I love newsstand? When I used to travel, I used to take 30 pounds of magazines with me. Mm-hmm. Now, you can get – I every day, I'm in China at our office. While I'm eating breakfast, I can read the New York Times. I can read The Economist. I can read whatever. And just – there are all sorts of great apps out there to do whatever you want to do. But to be able to not take the paper with me and have it is absolutely spectacular that i if the ipad had nothing else on it but newsstand Hmm. it would still be worth it to me because i can get all of my newspapers and magazines delivered and for the first time i thought about actually turning off the paper subscriptions because by the time anything shows up in paper it's out of date anyway yeah and so i think that is just the cat's meow yeah, and our listeners missed our, our pre-show uh, conversation where Jonathan um, acknowledged that iOS uh, supersedes Android. So uh, he's um, being divisive even when he's not trying to be. But Mark, I, just, I really Although want to share that because Mark's such an Android, Android guy. and iOS devices. I own them both, but uh, <laughs> the elegance of iOS is just amazing. And Mark, I didn't even oh. make a BlackBerry crack at all, and I, I well, won't. Okay. I won't. I mean, there's I won't. a lot of cracks you can make about BlackBerry. Is, is there yes. somebody still using a BlackBerry? Mark's got, Mark's. <laughs> that's his favorite. That's his go-to. Yeah, a couple guys in Waterloo, I think. But uh, <laughs> and, and, like I should be ben careful. Baker from Vancouver where, uh, used it. <laughs> but we can let Ben defend himself on the yeah, on his podcast. We'll do that. We'll do that. All right. Well, Jonathan Isaac has, Isaacson has been our guest, and Jonathan, it's been awesome to have you on. Thanks for taking the time to visit with us today. Uh, both of you guys any final words from from either one of you well thanks for having us and Mark it's nice to see that somebody is keeping Blackberry hopes of Blackberry alive up there <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it and I, I, I the only thing I was going to say is I remember I was at NALC Bobby you were there as well in uh last year sometime in the summer I think it was in New Orleans and, and Jonathan you got up and you presented 
this fascinating discussion on operations and culture and onboarding. And not only was it an amazing presentation, which kind of gave us the idea that we wanted to get you on the podcast, what I thought was really cool about it is that you had David Nicholson and you had the guys over at Sweda and all of your key direct competitors all in the room and you were just uh, really transparent in, in, in your approach. And I think that... Um, that, that supports a lot of what you were saying throughout this podcast, and I just think it's really, really cool. So thanks for having done that, and thanks uh, for agreeing to be on the show with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And to our Promo Kitchen community, uh, thank you guys for listening. As always, send Mark or I an email. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the program. Uh, let us give us any feedback, good, bad, or ugly. And we'd love to hear from you. Go out on iTunes or wherever you listen and make a comment. We'd love to get your feedback. And until next time, guys, take care. Thank you.